Father John Lovell, there was an image from World Youth Day 2023 in Portugal that was making arounds on social media in which the consecrated Eucharistic hosts, many of them apparently, were being kept in large gray plastic containers. It occurred to me that if we will not treat as sacred him who is sacred, then what hope do we have that the sense of the sacred will return? David, thank you for uh, inviting me on. It's, uh, I keep describing this as a masterclass with um, David L. Gray, and to participate is wonderful. Uh, a return of the sacred, is it even possible? Of course it is. And I know this because the patron saint of, can of all priests, excuse me, not just canceled priests, is right behind me, St. John Vianney. He became first administrator and then pastor of a tiny, tiny little church out in the middle of Podunk, France, right after the ravages of the revolution and the ravages of what came because of Napoleon and the civil wars. People did not really have faith. And St. John Vianney, as a secular Franciscan, third order Franciscan, he revolutionized his parish. And while he lived in extreme poverty by choice, he always made sure that the best linens, the best vestments, the best saboria, the best chalices were used that he could afford. And I had the great fortune of going to ours and seeing some of these vestments that are still around because they were made so well. But when he became administrator and then eventually pastor, there wasn't even a floor in the church. It was a dirt floor. And some people today might want to say, well, that money should be given to the poor. It's hard to argue with the poverty that St. John Vianney showed because he was a son of St. Francis in addition to being a diocesan priest. And let's go back. I believe you had, not too long ago, Father Augusta Tabit Sidon of the Dominicans. He wrote an excellent biography on St. Francis. And in that biography, he makes clear that St. Francis was adamant when the Franciscan friars who were living in extreme poverty went out they made sure that the parishes they helped out at, the monasteries they founded, the convents they founded, had nothing but the best when it comes to what is to the service and glory of God. Sadly, in the last 70 years or so, we've gotten away from that. Some like to always just blame Vatican II. It's easy. But as many say, and I say this too, Vatican II was just simply the coming out party. The church has been dealing with modernism for the last 150 years, if not longer. Some would say the French Revolution. Some would go all the way back to Occam. I like to say that we've been dealing with some form of Gnostic heresy since Simon Magus in the Acts of the Apostles. People that think that they know better. And I want to encourage everyone to read a great article by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski entitled World Profanation Day. 
and it's explaining why it is so important to restore the sacred, not just the beautiful, not just the smells and bells, but to show people that do reverence. It is not like the Archdiocese of Lisbon was told only mere months ago that they're going to be hosting World Youth Day. They were told three years ago. They had three years of preparation. And for those that watched any of the ceremonies, there was a lot of elaborate things going on. Not all of them great. But at the same time, we are having our Lord placed in gray bins. I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, David, won't mention her name, but she said they look like those plastic bins you get at Walmart. And we have to ask ourselves, is this really how we should be treating our Lord in life? When he lived for 33 years on this planet as an ordinary Jew, he had to put up with so much. Now, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after Pentecost, when we know that Jesus Christ is God, why don't we want to give him the best? Because you know what? The pot is big enough to help the poor and give due reverence to our Lord. So to get to your question, are we going to get back to the sen a sense of the sacred? I hope so. I try always. As a canceled priest, I'm often on the road with a traveling mass kit. I thoroughly enjoy celebrating the traditional mass, but I always try to make sure that my vestments are clean. I have altar linens. I have everything that you need for mass. I try not to skimp. And if we start getting into that process, yes, it's a chore, especially when you're going through an airport. But if we get back to that and just make those little sacrifices, show people the grandeur of adoration, I think we could achieve it. So in that introduction on the topic that you gave, one thing I kept hearing was this idea, this, this theme that was resonating, this line that was running through your introduction was excellence that excellence matters, the pursuit of excellence matters. Whether it came with um, St. John Vianney, the mass itself, vestments, furniture, those sacred things in the mass, that they, they should be the best. And when, when you were speaking, one thing came to mind, I forget what Saint I heard this from, but she had said that holiness the pursuit of sacredness is about doing what you're called to do, when you're called to do it, and how you're called to do it. And I think that was St. Mother Trace of um, Calcutta. And it sounds like excellence. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more, just how is the pursuit of, of that, the excellence of doing what you're called to do, how you're called to do it, when you're called to do it, why does that matter? in our lives as individuals and in the life of the, the church, of all of us as the people of God. 
It matters because we need to have a rhythm of life that's always drawing us to God. Every single day we're on this planet, we're drawing closer to either heaven or hell. And we should be always reaching for heaven. I've said this many a time. I really cringe when I hear a Catholic, even as a joke, say, well, I'm just hoping I get into purgatory. Because I always like to respond, well, if you're hoping to get into purgatory, you ain't going to make it to heaven. We have to always reach big. And I think showing the sacredness of the liturgy, and not just Mass, but even that of the Divine Office, and properly chanting it and bringing it back to parish churches is so important. Because the liturgy, I like to say, is a river. It's constantly flowing. And you step into the river and you are part of something that goes back over 2,000 years. I'm glad that you brought up St. Teresa, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, because I had the great fortune many a time to celebrate Mass for the Missionaries of Charity in Washington, D.C. when I was studying at the Dominican House of Studies. And they live in extreme poverty, similar to St. Francis, similar to St. John Vianney. But the love and respect that they gave to our Lord, again, in the vestments, in the chalices, in the saboria, I don't know if this is still true, but I was told that Mother Teresa forbade her sisters from receiving communion in the hand. They had to receive on the tongue. Who knows what's happened since COVID? But wonderful to see that. As an example, Mother Teresa, now St. Teresa, was able to see that there was a problem there that because when you receive in the hand, it diminishes the sacredness. And for those that want to argue whether it's World Youth Day, I, I'm, I've been seeing this all over social media. We should focus on the positive. 1.5 million or how many million young people came. And they were standing out in the sun. They were sleeping under the stars. But our Lord was still in a tent. Let's stop complaining and focus on the positive. Well, sorry. But when we see our Lord treated more as storage than the Ark of the Covenant, it makes me wonder why. And so I think back on those great saints that lived poverty and think, how did they treat our Lord? How did they do that? So I encourage people, when they're receiving our Lord, receive on the tongue. Try to receive, if you're going to the Novus Ordo Mass, on your knees, if physically capable. Make sure to do some type of adoration afterwards. I would love to see a church, David, where when the priest processes out, the people don't get up for 15 minutes. Because I can tell you from experience, every once in a while when you're done with Mass, it's nice to go and take the vestments off. It's nice to have just a minute or two to do your own adoration. And then, yes, go out and greet the people as they're leaving. And so I encourage everyone, when it comes to restoring the sacred, restoring that sense 
as you made mention of in the first question. That is the process that you're talking about in the second. It's the little things. And when you're able to start doing that more and more and encouraging others to do it, albeit in a charitable way, you're going to be able to move mountains because it's always in the small things. And when I first was learning how to serve the traditional mass at St. John Cantius, Father Frank Phillips, who was the founder of the Society of St. John Cantius, they now call themselves the Canons Regular of St. John Cantius, who restored that church that was near uh, bankruptcy and being closed. He personally taught me how to serve mass in the Novus Ordo, by the way. And he said, we always have to remember that our Lord said, and I'm paraphrasing, that if I cannot trust you in the small things, how can I trust you in the large things? And so I think that's the process that we have to look at, at getting back to the sacred. And Father, some of your students may be listening now, and they, they may have be thinking about some mixed signals that they, they receive just by maybe reading the catechism and looking at just, you know, the, the five or six precepts at, at a church and just the, the bare minimum of what the church is asking. Uh, go to confession once a year, make your offering, um, re receive communion once a year. You know, just these uh, fast, maybe just for an hour before receiving the Holy Eucharist. But, uh, you know, you could drink some water as well. You know, Th these things that have changed over the last 2000 years, you know, we've been whittling down, whittling down some of these what, we, what the, the church has asked of us. So, so now we're to a point where the church just doesn't ask much of us at all. And so this is a mixed signal, I, I think, when you're talking about these saints who you've mentioned, who did not live a life with a bare minimum, who went above and beyond. Um, and so I think the student may agree that, yes, that going above and beyond is, is probably, yes, the, the path to sainthood and, and probably the path to be able to have that sense, that smell, that, that, that transcendent understanding of the sacred. But why should they, how, how can they be encouraged to go above and beyond when the church is just saying, here's the bare minimum, just do this. And I'll add on top of that, since Vatican II, some people called it the Norvis Ordo Church. It hasn't hasn't yet produced a whole lot of saints. It just hasn't. It's very it's a very young idea. Um, Carlos Acutis maybe maybe one who we could point to, but it's a very young tradition. It just hasn't had a lot of hasn't really proven itself that it that it has what it takes to produce the saints. So taking those two things together, what would, what would be your response to the student here and, and them wondering, well, how can I be encouraged to do more if all they're asking me to do is this? Well, if I can uh, make mention, you, you mentioned the Eucharistic fast. Now it's only an hour before communion. It's not even an hour before Mass. It's an hour before communion. And as you well know, David, that on a, on a regular Sunday, that means maybe stop eating 50, 15, maybe 20 minutes before Mass. I don't see that as a sacrifice. 
And so if we could start encouraging amongst ourselves, amongst our friends, amongst our family who are trying to be faithful, and I realize not all of our friends and not, of our, not all of our family members are trying to be faithful, but if we're able to lead by example of trying to restore not just the three-hour fast, which was also a novelty in the 1950s, but the apostolic fast from midnight, not everyone can do that, I understand, for health reasons, medicine, all of that. But there's a lot of us that could easily fast from midnight and even go to Mass at 9 or 10 o'clock to receive. Not a lot of people are seeing that, but it is a sacrifice that can change the world, slowly but surely. And fasting in and of itself Sadly, since the Second Vatican Council, we only have two days a year that is required fasting. One regular meal and two smaller meals that don't add up to a regular meal, if need be. Our early ancestors would have laughed at that. Before the 6th century, even in the Roman Rite, before the reforms of St. Gregory, on a fast day, you had one meal. And it did not happen until after sunset. No meat byproducts, no fish even. Depending on the time of year, as if it was Lent, not even oil or wine would be taken with the meal. They went to extremes. But, you know, in the last 200, 250 years, there has been slowly a rolling back of the fasting. To the point now where People don't understand we need both prayer and fasting in order to make it to heaven. St. John Henry Newman makes this clear. They are the two wings that get us to heaven. You need both, not one or the other. Because, you know, intermittent fasting is very important right now for people that want to lose weight. So the, our society doesn't have a problem with fasting. What our society has a problem with is how we direct the merits and the graces of that fasting. How did St. John Vianney convert ours? By prayer and fasting. With extreme fasts, taking the ridicule that was heaped upon him even by brother priests and just slowly transforming ours from a parish where hardly anyone went to mass and as St. John Vianney said, they only knew two sins, murder and rape. That was it. This is the 1700s, 1800s. And it took St. John Vianney 10 years before he started to see any fruit in ours. But slowly it was coming back. And by the time he died, 40 years after first coming to ours, the French government, who at the time was necessarily no fan of the uh, church, was having to build railroad tracks to bring pilgrims to ours. People would wait in line for three days to go to confession to the cure of ours. And so I think what we have to realize is that you might get discouraged, especially for those that are Americans, because we really do have a fast food type of mindset. That it better come quickly. I better start seeing results quickly. 
took St. John Vianney 10 years before he started to see real fruit. Look at St. Monica. And so to do that, and then to take other practical steps, to try to find a mass that gives due worship to God. For those familiar with David L. Gray, we know there's a lot of masses out there that do not give due worship to God. I highly encourage the traditional mass. Many people, even those that attend the Novus Ordo, I'm thinking of Dr. Scott Hahn, says clearly it is, it is a higher form of worship, but not everybody can make it to a traditional mass. And if you can't, try to find the best mass as possible. And if that's impossible, start praying for your priest. Start asking St. John Vianney to start melting his heart so that he starts seeing the love and devotion that the people need in order to get to heaven. I'm always inspired to be a better priest when I see the laity doing it better than me, leading the way for me. It is a reminder, all right, Father, we got to do better. And I think that's certainly possible. And so when we look at World Youth Day and we see what's going on, even though, as I said earlier, that they had so much time to prepare. And this isn't the first World Youth Day that this happened at. It happened under John Paul. It happened under Benedict. I've only been to one World Youth Day, and it was Sydney 2008. And that was the only time that I heard little to no complaints about World Youth Day. Because the Pope was Benedict, his master of ceremonies, who's now a bishop, in tangent with the Archdiocese of Sydney, which at the time was being run by Cardinal Pell, Cardinal George Pell, who just recently passed away, may he rest in peace, was able to put on a World Youth Day with at least a sense of the sacred. I didn't see everything. There might have been some abuses. But David, I look back at some of the World Youth Days like Denver, I think it was 1993, when Mother Angelica just went off. I love sharing that video. I love her passion. I tell people, do you want to see what justified anger looks like? Look at Mother Angelica. And then the revolution that she started, again, not in the traditional mass, but in the Novus Ordo, she made sure her nuns went back to full habit. They made sure that those televised masses had Gregorian chant, had beautiful music, beautiful solemnity. People might want to critique EWTN now, but even today, looking at the Novus Ordo Mass, look at the care EWTN puts in. And again, I'm not defending it. All I'm saying is, is look at the care that they put in to what that they do. And if we start moving that, we start to see that. Mother Angelica is responsible, in my opinion, for the liturgical revolution that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it was capped off when Pope Benedict was elected Pope. And I'm, I'm sad to see kind of a falling back. And I'm not talking about just the falling back to the early 90s or the 80s, okay? 
but it seems like people are trying to go back to the 70s. Traditionalists are often accused of wanting to go back to the 40s and 50s. Cardinal Roach wants to go back to the 70s. You see people who want to tell you, no, you can't have ad orientum. You have to receive in the hand. You can't have Latin. This goes against the Second Vatican Council. This goes against Sacrosanctum Concilium. They don't care. And so when you when I see the lady having to deal with that, my heart moves for them as a priest, as someone who wants to be a father, who's striving to be back being a pastor in regular life. And it realizes that one of the ways that I can help as a priest, and it's what St. John Vianney did, is with extreme fasting, with extreme prayer, especially since I'm canceled. I don't necessarily have all the duties. Well, I shouldn't say that. Running the Coalition for Canceled Priests, I have a lot of duties. But as a canceled priest at first, all I had was prayer. All I had was the Mass. All I had was divine office by myself with our Lord. It was hard at first. But I was able to see the love of God and to see what he was moving me and other priests to do. And I wouldn't have spoken to you well if I hadn't asked you about the connection between being persecuted and patience. In the last question you answered, you, I heard this theme of, of, of being patient, especially how John Vianney, St. John Vianney was patient for those 10 years. And um, Jesus speaks about this, of course, with the fig tree. Um, but you as, as a council priest yourself and with the Coalition for Council Priests, which you co-founded co and that you lead, I think you have a unique understanding how persecution and patience works, especially with priests who are working through their canon law cases. And, and some of your students may be wondering about this as well. Uh, we had another speaker on here, Father John Matori, who was a who's a Dominican. He was he was speaking about some of what we're struggling with in the West is a lot of it is first world problems. People who he's encountered in poor countries, maybe they are so concerned with the LGBT agenda in a sense that we see it here and some of the, some of the first world problems that he called, that he, that he said. And so um, pursuing a sense of the sacred sometimes looks different in some poorer countries, but, but he also said that um, the persecution um, is the one thing that, that ties all of us together, whether first world, third world is, is that it's, it's still there. So I wanted you to maybe tie those things together here. And as we head out, I can make this the final question. And also, if you can answer with the theme of persecution and patience, can you also tie that together with us um, restoring the sense of the sacred? Although you, all, you already mentioned some things, extreme, the extremities you said, um, really ardently pursuing sacredness through fasting and prayer, the twin pillars, the pursuit of excellence. But can you wrap all that also together in persecution and patience? The church is always in need of reform. I started off this class by pointing out the monumental work that St. John Vianney had to do. It was not universal, though, then. 
it's universal now, as you say, first world, third world, does not matter. We are connected by the persecution. And it is when the church is persecuted that it grows. When the church gets rich, when the church gets fat, that's when we start to have problems. When the church starts sitting on its laurels, that's when we start having a problem. And I'm not, ladies and gentlemen, let me make something clear. When I say church, I'm not talking about the perfect mystical body of Christ. I'm talking about the members that make it up, you and me. Is that when we start getting this sense of, well, we don't need to evangelize, or we don't need to do this, the whole town is Catholic. I can give you an example. I know a priest still alive in the Archdiocese of Dubuque in Iowa. And he was ordained in 1952. Some, again, would say the heyday of the Catholic Church in the United States. Churches were packed. Schools were packed. In fact, basically, uh, the only Catholics that went to a public school back then were the ones that were on the waiting list to get into the Catholic school. And the pastor said to him, I bet you won't be able to find one convert for the Easter Triduum. And this priest, who's now well into his 90s, who's one of the most outgoing people that I know, type A personality, all the psychological terms that you want to use, he was able to get, I think, 45 or 54, one of those two numbers, in a town that was Catholic. So there is a chance, even in the heyday, for conversion. But my point is this, we're not in the heyday, universally. First world, third world, does not matter. Europe, North America, Africa, Asia, South America, there are severe problems, sometimes very different problems. But if Catholics try in every country to do their very best to attend sacred liturgy, to encourage in a charitable way priests to learn the Mass better, to use the proper vestments, to give their all to God in the chalices, the saboria, in the linens, if we clean our churches again. David, think about this, and for the ladies and gentlemen watching this show and this class. We live, and we might be a little arrogant in saying this as Americans, the greatest country on earth. I would contend it's on the decline, and it has been for a while. But we're still a very rich country. And I'm amazed if I go into a church in a rich, what, what I like to call a rich white suburban parish. I'm amazed at how dirty the church is. It's surrounded by these beautiful homes that I'm sure are immaculate. And the church has cobwebs. It's dusty. It's dirty. It was built in the 60s. It was built in the 70s. It doesn't look like any of the houses around it, which are beautiful. They would 
make for better chapels than the local parish church. I know this because my first assignment I'm describing. I remember going in and the pastor who was actually very eager to hear what I wanted to say, I would say, well, can we at least clean up the thurible and clean it? Can we get more than just two candles, especially for Sunday? Can we try to get vestments that are not stained in polyester? Can we try to show a sense of the sacred? Can we get real linen? And while I was only there two, three years, slowly but surely, people started to see a difference. And the pastor was reluctant at first to bring in communion patents. We did it very slowly, just at one mass, didn't want to scare the people. I don't know how communion patents can scare people. I, I really don't. But when we finally put them in, when I was leaving the parish, one of the deacons said to me, Father, I didn't quite understand why we were bringing patents back until as the deacon, I had to purify them over the chalice. And I saw with my own eyes how many crumbs the patent caught. I went back and I told the pastor what he said, and I explained it just like that. And I said, Monsignor, if you try to get rid of the patents when I leave, I think that deacon will kill you. Because, I said it jokingly, of course, because he saw, he found the sacredness in that gesture of bringing back the communion patents, which by the way is a requirement in the Novus Ordo. I bet even a lot of priests don't know that. It's not, it's not in the general instructions in one of the follow-up documents that came out under John Paul. I, don't, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, my apologies. But it is a requirement. And that's how I convinced the pastor to bring it. Because at least he was open to following the rubrics. And so many priests are canceled because they're trying to follow the rubrics. They're trying to bring a sense of the sacred, albeit imperfectly, because even priests are imperfect. Father John Lovell, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on a return to the sacred. <laughs>